Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. We have a great event talking about proof how the world became geometrical. And we have Amir Alexander, who wrote the book, associate adjunct professor of history at UCLA. And we have Edward Frankel here to uh, interview him. He is a professor of mathematics at UC Berkeley and the author of Love and Math. He'll be moderating the lecture tonight. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming, first of all. Yes. Talk about geometry and, uh, you know, in a time where there's a lot of other things to talk about. Euclidean so and, non, and non-Euclidean. Yeah, all sorts, all sorts. So. Right. We are here to talk about Amir's beautiful new book, which is called Proof, How the World Became Geometrical. And after we talk, and hopefully we will pick your interest sufficiently, so you will have a chance to have, to get this book and get it signed by the author, <laughs> just outside. By the author, yes. Right? So, yes. It's interesting. Edward and me, we met uh, a few years ago when I, I, I reviewed his, his book, Love and Math. It came out a few years ago, and, and then we met. the best on... review. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, yeah, it was a fantastic you. read. If, if you haven't, you should. Uh, and then we met on the, uh, uh, the uh, Claremont Hotel, and we just kind of started talking. And before you know, like two hours later, it's like, Wow. So uh, I thought, you know, when this event came up, I thought, you know, who better than Edward to continue our conversation here? Thank you. I appreciate that. And it's a great pleasure to to do this. I um, So uh, Amir uh, uh, Alexander is a historian. He's a he's professor at UCLA, and he has written a number of fascinating books about history of mathematics. I would say it's quite rare to have a historian really... Uh, write such deep uh, and uh, insightful accounts. As a professional mathematician, I can attest to that. And that uh, I, I learned a lot of things which I didn't know from his books. His previous book, which uh, is also fascinating, is called Infinitesimal, for those of you who are interested in this kind of stuff. Um, uh, but And that's how I, 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 I first learned, I first read his work, and it was, that was the book. And even before that, he wrote a book which was called, which is called uh, uh, dual at dawn, uh, and um, see, some of my notes are on my iPhone, and some of my notes, see, I am very uh, high-tech. So, the dual at dawn, heroes, martyrs, and the rise of modern mathematics, in which he, in particular, gave a very interesting um, account of this phenomenon of, uh, of this sort of romantic Math, uh, 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 portrait of a mathematician, as exemplified, for instance, by Evariste Galois, the French prodigy, who um, was killed in a duel at the age of 20, but before that uh, came up with some radical mathematical theories which we use to this day. So this new book, this new book, uh, Proof, is also about this sort of uh, intersection between uh, mathematics um, uh, and specifically geometry, and I'm going back to geometry of Euclid. So this is we're talking about 2,300 years ago. Although we don't, uh, uh, we can talk about this later. But it's a fascinating story because we don't even know when exactly Euclid was born and when he died. We know it was more or less around 300 BC. You might 
have a different opinion, but that's what I read in Wikipedia. So, <laughs> not, not only in Wikipedia. All right. So, um, specifically Euclidean geometry, but he, um, um, Amir puts Euclidean geometry in a context, in a framework of some really deep uh, movements in the culture and politics of Western civilization. And uh, so uh, this is one of the things that I would like to ask him about today. But I, I want to start by saying that when you open this book, so when you just um, start reading the introduction, the first thing it tells you is this incredible story from 17th century, second half 17th century, about Nicolas Fouquet, who was the superintendent of finances for the king, um, uh, the Sun King, uh, yeah, Louis, Louis the Fourteenth, Louis Louis the Fourteenth, and I was like, hmm, Fouquet, that name sounds familiar. And then the next page, he mentions D'Artagnan. I was like, wow, you know. <laughs> so these are the characters, of course, from um, Alexander Dumas, you know, Three Musketeers. And I, for some, you know, I grew up in in Russia in the Soviet Union, and in those days, Dumas was very popular. Yeah. Especially among teenagers, so it was my my favorite books. I read all of them, uh, and Three Musketeers. Um, what about you? Did you read? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Definitely. Who was your favorite musketeer? My favorite, well, Athos was a favorite. Athos, was, yes. I, for me, it was, was first everybody's favorite. First D'Artagnan, but then Athos, kind of a tormented soul, you know. But D'Artagnan was this sort of a fun guy, right? So guess what? D'Artagnan appears. Actually, he existed, and he arrests. On the first pages of the book, uh, he arrests this uh, powerful superintendent, Fouquet, right, and puts him in jail. So you had me at D'Artagnan, basically. I was like, wow, <laughs> okay. this is a book for me. So tell, tell us a little bit about this story. Why did he arrest Fouquet? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting story. It's, uh, it's, it happened uh, in, in the year 16, 1661. When uh, uh, Nicolas Fouquet, who was superintendent of finances, invited the king to his new estate, the beautiful new estate of Volevicom. And uh, the king arrives in the evening and, the, uh, and Fouquet leads him and all his retinue through the garden, down the main hall, between those beautiful symmetrical parterres and in the beautiful round pool in a mirror pool. And then there is a, they, there is a, they sit in a horseshoe little amphitheater and there's a, a play by, a new play by Moliere that is, that is performed for them. And just as they think that, that the evening is over, suddenly... Uh, suddenly they have a firework shoot up from the chateau's dome and they kind of they, they descend like midnight suns on the, on the garden. And then there is a feast that is served to the king and all 5,000 of his retinue and soldiers and, and, and home guard. And the, Fouquet thinks that this is like the most wonderful entertainment and he's basking in the glow of royal approval. But the next day the king is going home. It's going home to his own chateau in Fontainebleau and he's with his mother, Anne of Austria. Just as they leave, he kind of turns to her and he says, Ah, madame, shouldn't we make those people disgorge all of that? <laughs> and two weeks later, he does exactly that. He invites Fouquet. To an interview, to an to to an interview about uh, you know about state things, and he has D'Artagnan, the captain of musketeers, hide in the hide in the other room at the sign for the king. D'Artagnan, who was a friend of Fouquet, as a matter of fact, springs forwards, arrests him, 
And uh, that's it for that's it for poor Fouquet. He is charged. He spends the rest of his days, another 20 years, in a prison in the Alps and never sees his beautiful uh, his beautiful chateau again. And so, and, and so Louis XIV basically then takes all the stuff. But then you say his greatest acquisition, though, uh, <clears throat> was an arch- was not an architect, was not you know painter architect. It was the gardener. André Lenotre. Right. So Lenotre became Lenotre. For Lenotre, a, for was, the, for yeah. <laughs> Lenotre was already in the king's service, but he would... So he it was created, something about yeah. the garden, something special about the garden. It was the garden, and then you yes. Explained Why that, did he do yes. that? Yeah, what, 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 what was the problem? Fouquet had been loyal all his life. He stood by the king in his darkest hour. He had known him since childhood. What did he do wrong? And the answer was the garden. He built a geometrical garden. He built a garden that could only belong to the king. He built a geometrical garden that, that represented all the order and all the hierarchy of the world. But at the top, instead of the king, he put himself, his own chateau, at the top of his geometrical garden. And that was not just untactful. That was to Louis XIV, who thought that there is a hierarchy to everything and he has to be at the top. That was an attack on the state. That was a, that. That was high treason. So then and he rectified so that. He rectified that. He took everything from Volevicom, transferred it to Versailles, and said he will build a geometrical garden like no other. Once everybody, once somebody sees Versailles, nobody will remember that. So old Versailles garden. was not yet built. In fact, it was built and it was designed by the, that same architect. And, yeah, the, 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 there was a garden at Versailles, but it wasn't the garden that we know today. It was smaller, much more modest. It was it was Le Notre right. who made so Versailles. So what was Versailles. so special about this garden? Hmm? Well, the garden was a uh, the garden was special. It was precisely because it was a, 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 a geometrical garden, and geometry had this uh, going back to going back to Euclid. Euclid, when he uh, uh, going back to going back to the Greeks, um, the novelty of geometry was that you could suddenly prove things. That was the first time ever, perhaps the first and last time. I don't think it was, this, you know, it was that you could that it was discovered that you could actually prove and demonstrate absolute truth with absolute certainty, simply by reason simply by reason, and prove things that are true and that no one, no sane person could possibly argue with them. And then, so you had those... So, the, so absolute truth was considered until the Greeks as a province of gods mm-hmm. at war. Yeah. And then the Greeks, and I would say you probably agree with it, that even before Euclid you have uh, Pythagoras who, for instance, and Pythagoreans who had Pythagoras theorem, for instance, mm-hmm. And uh, also the sum of the angles is right, right. 80 degrees, the sum of the angles of a triangle. But even, even before that, Thales, Thales. So there were. But it still comes from the same Greek tradition. from the same tradition, yeah. And so the Greeks somehow had the audacity to say that we mere humans can actually reach that same realm. Yeah. Absolute truth. And we can do that by our faculty of reason alone, essentially. Exactly. Not by drawing necessarily, not by writing poetry, not by, you know, bu- bu- building uh, things, but by thinking. Yeah, and not by divine revelation or anything. And the idea but that you can seek, as you write in your book, 
you write, seeking truth for the sake of truth. It, it was not that they were motivated by practical applications. It's not that Euclid had in mind building mm -hmm. gardens and stuff like that. That came much right. later, right? We're talking about 2,300 years ago, or in the case of Pythagoras, 2,500 years ago. Yeah. So that's a miracle. In some sense, you know, that one of the things which I find so captivating about your book is that you kind of lay it for us at the very beginning in the introduction to the book, and it made me, you know, as a, as, a as, a, as a practicing mathematician, you know, we kind of like, you know, when you do it as for a living, you kind of think about it as a metier, as a profession, you know, so you kind of go and do it every day. And, so, and you start forgetting the miracle that it is. Yeah. And it is a miracle, this idea. And I'm not saying other jobs are not, but there is something special about mathematical knowledge. Uh, unlike other knowledge, I, sometimes I give this example, like if, if Leo Tolstoy did not live, or died young, we would not have Anna Karenina. There's no reason to believe that someone else would come up yeah. with the same uh, book, with the same novel. But if Pythagoras had not lived, we would still have Pythagoras' theorem, and it would still be exactly the same. Or you, if Euclid did not live, we well, are pretty sure that they would still have Euclidean geometry. Well, some form of it. Euclid did something quite miraculous. I mean, perhaps... But Euclid did something miraculous because he took all those truths, like you said, and you said something from Thales, something from Pythagoras. There was other mathematician, Hippocrates of Chios, for example, in the 5th century. Other mathematicians had all those separate proofs based on different, somewhat different assumptions, sort of kind of assortment of things. And the interesting thing about Euclid is that he's famous not for inventing, he's not, not for a mathematical contribution, but for taking everything that was around him, all those truths, all those proofs, and organizing them, and organizing them in a perfect systematic, perfect systematic way. Basically, he took all those proofs and created a world of proofs. That is, in Euclid's world, you start in... Hmm? So proof kind of front and center. Yeah. Of the whole enterprise. Absolutely. This idea that we can actually do something with absolute certainty so that everyone who comes after us will have the same understanding and will be able to ascertain in the same way as we did. Exactly. And this, a, it's a, so it's a timeless knowledge. You know, mm -hmm. Timeless, timeless knowledge. eternal, Necessary. perfect. Yes. Mm -hmm. And also, because of the way he organized it, it was kind of a, it was a perfectly organized, and it was a hierarchical world. Because, first of all, every one of those, every, he, he, had a, he created a whole world of lines and, and uh, triangles and circles and uh, you know, squares and so on. And they're all, and, and it's a world of truths about them, and they're all related to each other. Every set of theorems is based on previous theorems that are based on previous theorems. All of them are interconnected. All of them are in a fixed relationship, relationship to relationship to each other. And it's a whole beautiful, perfect world of truth right. that, 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 he, that, he managed, that he managed to create. And that was, that was an, I mean, to, it's, a, it's a, really a miraculous right. accomplishment. Perhaps someone would have, done it, would have done it if it was at Euclid, but it's there's something miraculous. What I mean, yes, I, I, I see. What I mean by is rather that the truth themselves. So he, mm -hmm. it is interesting the way he went about it. So, mm -hmm. and uh, if I am not mistaken, there were ten major books and then three other books, like something like thirteen books of right, Euclid's exactly. elements, yes. and the way he systematic. And nobody ever had ever done anything like that. So this was really an absolutely astonishing feat, achievement. Um, for me, uh, th so that's very important. The other side of it is that the statements themselves, and they, they, were, they had been recast by others, for instance, the mo most 
recent sort of famous project of re- recasting them in modern terms were was due to David Hilbert at the beginning of 20th century and so on. It's still the same. The, uh, two, uh, the fifth postulate, the famous two, fifth postulate, two parallel lines don't intersect, yeah. it means the same to us as it meant to Euclid. Yes. We are pretty it sure is. of that. Yeah. How many other things do we have in our world, and especially nowadays, when it looks like we disagree about pretty much everything? <laughs> yeah. How many things we have that we can hold on to and say, look, we share that. We right? share so, that. Yeah. So you, that's, you read, yeah, you, you, and, read, you read Euclid, you read Archimedes. You recognize this is mathematics. And this is 2,500 years ago. How much do we know about Euclid? Like I said, we don't know when he was born, when he died, and so on. But we know that the fifth postulate meant the same thing to him as it means to us. Mm -hmm. And this is a hint. It's a kind of a reminder to us that we are who we are. You know, like we are, we are not, we are not separate from each other. We're not at at conflict with each other, even if we uh, temporarily may forget. But it's, Books like that, they're there to remind us, to bring us back home, right? So, and to quote from your book, in elements, the dream of a rational and eternal world of absolute truth becomes reality. And then you, um, uh, the reality, kind of a platonic reality. And you, you actually yeah. remind us of the quote of Plato, let no one ignorant of geometry enter here, which was above his academy in Athens, right? So Euclid was probably influenced by Plato. Uh, we, don't, we don't know, but it's quite yeah. possible. And yet it took so many years. So then your, your, your book proper starts with the times of, um, I suppose, 14th, 15th, yeah. 15th century. 16th century. 15th century on, right? So just I was just wondering. So, it's, so you draw a direct connection between the Greeks, and Renaissance. So yes. we're talking about something like 1,800 years. Yes. and Why? Why so long? Because for the Greeks, uh, you know, because precisely because Euclid The world was, was not ready the, for this idea? Yes. No, well, I don't know if it wasn't ready. It was just that Euclid, like you say, he, he was a Platonist. And Plato, Plato said, in order to know the universal truth, you have to, uh, you have to follow geometry or dialectics and so on. But, the, but for Plato... The, that perfect world, that ideal world, was not our world. It was up there. It was the world of the forms. It was separate. It was much more perfect, much more beautiful, much more ideal. Our world is fallen, is inconsistent, is changing. So kind of messy. a refuge in a way right. from, from this world. What? Right? For him, it was a refuge in a way. It was. From- and then the Christian church, and then that was that was mostly how the Greeks saw it. It's like, yes, geometry, this is an amazing achievement, but it's not about, it doesn't tell us anything about our world. And then the Christian Church in the Middle Ages ado- adopted, uh, also adopted, adopted that you, our world is a fallen world in the Christian, mm-hmm. in Christian, in Christian theology. All those truths of geometry are very beautiful and very impressive, but of course they don't, um, our, they don't describe our corrupt world. And what happens in the Renaissance? With people like Brunelleschi and Masaccio and Alberti, which you also talk about, we may not have time to discuss, but he also right. talks about not only po- politics implications, politics, but in arts as well. It's also fascinating. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. The, they they are the ones who they're the first suddenly, ones in a sense. They are the first ones. It's amazing. They are the ones who, at what I say, is they made the world geometrical, and it's just amazing. Through they're art the ones, and architecture, right? Yes, primarily. Through, through, yeah, yeah. The, the, that, that was that was the expression. But fundamentally, they decided that that world up there. 
is actually our world. That our world is imbued with, ma- that there is a, ma- a deep mathematical order to our world, which was exactly against, went against the Greek tradition, also against the, the, the traditional Christian tradition, and is the basis of so much of modern science, the assumption. Galileo says the world is written in, geomet- in the geometrical, in the language of geometry. And that is the basis of so much of modern science. And as I showed also, and the book is also about its other implication. And it's just amazing that we know precisely the people who made, who made, that, who made that transition. And they were people who knew each other in 15th century Florence. Right. So, so you talk about, um, uh, for instance, the architect of Duomo, of the, of the dome uh, of the famous uh, cath- uh, yeah, cathedral, Brunelleschi yeah. in uh, Florence. Yes. Um, but the, the part which, which I, I have truly, I would like to bring us back to that story of, of uh, that we started with of uh, Louis XIV. Uh, so in a sense, the, those events, they eventually led to the way others went about perspective and, and um, discovering the perspective and using in the, in the, in the, in the, in the art and painting, but exactly. also in architecture. And in designing gardens, for instance, which is how this eventually came to this point where, which we discussed at the beginning, right? And so, which is where now these ideas are, as you argue, are taken by a ruler, a monarch, Louis, uh, Louis the 14th, who actually kind of appropriates these mathematical ideas to land legitimacy. To his rule, right? He exactly. wants to create this uh, this impression that his uh, rule is perfect and rational and inevitable mm-hmm. and strictly hierarchical, right? Right, right? yeah. And how best to convince of that his subjects, but to surround himself with what things that scream, you know, this perfect Euclidean geometry, right? So that's what happens with Versailles. Exactly, exactly. And you can see the tradition. I mean, the French kings, I mean, the French kings were the first to realize that there are political, that you can actually use this politically. This idea, the world is geometrical. There's a deep geometrical order. What if all this, what if we are at the apex of this geometrical hierarchical order? What if we present ourselves and our How convenient, right? How How convenient 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 for somebody but, uh, so to you know, appropriate this. Yes, we're not. So the king of France is king not just because he has a big army, and if you say something he doesn't like, he'll put you in jail or kill you or something like that. But because there is a deep order in the world, a deep geometrical order, and all of it points to the supremacy of the king, and that was uh, that, that was that that was that was built up over two hundred years, but it really reached its climax with 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 Versailles. Now, to what extent? I'm, what I'm curious about is to what extent that was. On the part of Louis XIV, it was unconscious, and to what extent he was actually aware of what he's doing, and to what extent also for his architect, Lenotre, this was, uh, to what extent was he actually familiar with Euclid, for instance, and oh. the Greeks? Oh, they were very familiar. I mean, certainly, certainly uh, uh, a, a, a gardener, a high-level gardener for like Lenotre, he studied. Uh, it was so he cool. would know he, the parallel lines. Don't he, 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 he knew he knew geometry. He even, he even of... quoted as saying that that's one of the requirements. Geometry is a key requirement for being a gardener. You know. Um, and so, what would you say so special about about the Versailles? In what way does it reflect this perfect, as, as you write, universe that that was perfectly rational, impeccably ordered, and strictly hierarchical? And one one could add, it, and divinely ordained, right? Uh-huh, so right, right. What yeah. was what was it about it? Now that we look back and kind of analyze it, 
So there, there are several things. I mean, there are several things that you can see that you can see at Versailles. I mean, partly it is simply it is this uh, uh, this geometrical geometrical garden that is that you have like perfect parterres and they're divided into certain geometrical shapes and certain everything is symmetrical and everything uh, everything from every blade of grass, every geometrical, every cone shaped tree, every parterre. It's all perfectly arranged in this in this geometrical structure, which pertained, which is the garden is a representation of the world, and it tells you it has everything that there is in the world. It has it has uh, has it has trees, it has uh, lawns, it has animals, it has water, it has every stone, it has everything, and it shows you that deep down there is a deep geometrical order underneath it, and all of it, all of it. Is as you can see in Versailles, there is the uh, the palace at the top of the at the top of the valley, and everything slopes from there in perfect geometrical in perfect. So there is something at the, at, the, at the center clearly. Yeah, and you're, as you say, all lines kind of intersect. Right, there. and then yeah, so, so that yeah, that, and that's the seat of power. right, and then. So there, there's that. There's those geometrical, clear geometrical order and geometrical arrangements that all point to the palace, and then there is what seems. Like open, like open space beyond it, beyond it, there is, but underneath, like a canopy of trees that doesn't, that doesn't look quite as clear, carefully, just as carefully arranged. But underneath it, underneath, if you look under the trees, you find that they're all crisscrossed with precise lines, precise angles, roads that lead nowhere except in a big arrow towards the palace. Okay, so the whole the whole garden says the world might seem confusing, the world might seem obscure, but if you look closely underneath it all, there is a fixed geometrical hierarchical order, and you know where it points. All of it points towards the palace and the king's bedroom at the center of the palace. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so the whole garden is in fact is a manifesto for uh, Louis, for Louis the Fourteenth geometrical rule. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of. I am reminded, on the one hand, your such your eloquent description of, and I, I have been to Versailles, and I, but before I read the book, so from from now on, I will not be able to see it with the same in the same way as before I read the book. So, and I am reminded, on one hand, this line, famous line, Euclid alone has looked on beauty bare. Right. Do you guys know who that is? Edna, Edna San Vincent Millay is one of her sonnets. Uh, so who said that? I know, I know the quote. Euclid alone yeah, has looked quote, on yeah. beauty bare. Right, who it's said the first that? line. Edna San Vincent Millay, oh, Edna Saint a great Millay. American okay. poet. Okay. And um, on the one hand, so, but for Euclid, I don't think Euclid wanted to infuse that be- uh, beauty uh, laid bare with power, with uh, control, no, no. subjugation. What an interesting idea, 1,800 years later, that somebody would take that seemingly pure um, idea of beauty, you know, mm-hmm. and but try to appropriate it in this way. It, it says something about our world and the foundations of our Western civilization, if you will, right? The modernity. Mm-hmm. You talk about this as um, kind of the, the events that ushered modernity, right? So it's a kind of really cornerstone events, uh, landmark events of the onset of modernity. I think it's a what particular... What does it say about, yeah. uh, to us about it? What, 
I think it is a particular view of modernity. I mean, it's, yes. a, it's a particular tradition in modernity because Louis XIV, the kings of France, Louis XIV in particular, certainly did precisely that. He infused, you know, he saw it all in terms of power and in terms of fixed, eternal, unchanging, rational hierarchy. Mm. And he formed this perfect, this very powerful bureaucratic state, which is all, uh, you know, top down. And you can see, I think a lot of it still, you know, the structure of the French state still has some of those residues of that kind of top top-down kind of kind of structure that began at, that began at that time. So that's one tradition. But of course, there are others, right. and there are, there, is, there are other traditions and other kinds of aesthetics, and yeah, certainly that were art. deliberately critical. You, you also have beautiful art of Renaissance, for instance, yeah. which is more in line with Euclid's original approach, right? So, mm-hmm. but then you it goes hand in hand. So with one hand, it gives you the beauty and um, and uh, you know insights and. And with another hand, it, create, it terrorizes and creates violence and conflict yeah. and strife, right? So, and we see that we are we see the echoes. We are we live through the vibration of the echoes reverberating through our lives today. I think it's very connected to what has been happening. That's why I think um, uh, George was talking about history and why it's important. You know, so yeah, we learn something about ourselves, right? So that. And speaking about ourselves, let's fast forward 200 years. Uh, the 200 years, no, um, three, uh, 100 years, uh, 100, uh, right? Uh, 17. Uh, Washington. Washington, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking years, yes. the, a new um, state decides how to design its capital, and that's the United States of America. Tell us a little bit about that story. Right. So the, uh, the person who designed uh, the capital of the United States was a Frenchman, uh, uh, Pierre L'Enfant. 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 The names in this story are, are really, really great. You know? L'Enfant, <laughs> the child, and a French child designed. Yes, and he was, was a child. He was a child of the old regime. His father was a painter in the royal service. He did, did beautiful paintings for Louis, war paintings for Louis the Fifteenth. He grew up in Versailles and the Tuileries. He grew up absorbing the kind of uh, the kind of aesthetic. Uh, that was in the courts of the French, in the courts of the French king, and uh, he and he proposed he proposed this uh, 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 this uh, design for Washington D.C., which would use that geometrical structure, that would use that geometrical language, but in the service of a different ideal. That is, in service in, uh, to present a republican. Uh, political order instead of instead of all points all lines pointing to one inevitable inevitable point inevitable epics where the king is he created a more complex political order but he put it he also put it in a, presented it in a geometrical language which is what you see in washington dc to this day that is, if you go, if you go, you stand in the mall, for example, and you look up at uh, at uh, Capitol Hill. That's basically Versailles, right? It's the uh, it's the, the the great the great gardens aligned, all pointing to the palace. In this case, the palace of the people on the hill. The the the, the, the geometry, the the pre, uh, 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 the whole language is indeed Versailles, except that in Washington D.C. it's not the only node of power. There's at least one more co-equal. That is what Lenfan called the President's Palace. And the President's Palace in Lenfan's idea was not what we know as the White House. He saw the White House, he thought, this is some, some pathetic little country house. He wanted a palace for the President. But if you look from Washington Monuments up at the White House, it's also Versailles, right? White House, there's a garden leading up 
the White House at the top. So you have co-equal centers of power, and there's Pennsylvania Avenue connecting them in a balance. There's a tension between those two centers of power. They tower over the city. So you have two centers of, two centers of federal power. Now, on top of that, if you look at the, at the map of Washington, D.C., there's also others. There's also those local, local, um, those local plazas, 15, 15 of them in, in then Fon's design. Why 15? Because there are 15 states in the Union in 1791. Right. And each one of those plazas was named after a state. And they are connected like a geometrical web. All of them connected, all of them connected in straight lines and those uh, and uh, star-shaped plazas, immovable and lying like a web over the entire city. So basically, this was one, this was two years after the this was two years after the uh, uh, ratification of the Constitution, and he created a city that wanted to express the constitutional order in a geometrical language and make it fixed, eternal, necessary, irrevocable, like mm-hmm. geometry. And he wrote it into the streets of Washington. But, but interestingly enough, you describe that it wasn't clear at all that that's what was meant to happen because. Uh, L'Enfant had a very powerful adversary who had a totally different idea. Yes. And that was? That was Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) Thomas Jefferson, by the way, one of the founding fathers who was very fond of Euclid, in fact, and in fact, mathematics in general. And um, he has uh, said, actually, there is a, I want to quote one of his letters. He said, when I was young, mathematics was the passion of my life. He had uh, Euclid's elements in his library, and, and there are some reports that he would carry it with him when he traveled. And uh, the other quote, which I cannot, I, 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 I feel like I want to mention, is that he has written to John Adams in 1812. I have given up newspapers in exchange for Newton and Euclid, and I find myself much the happier. <laughs> <laughs> I have given up Twitter and Facebook <laughs> yeah. for Newton and, and Euclid, that one could say today, right? Yeah. And I find myself much different. He was writing home. He, he was ambassador to revolutionary France. Yes. He's writing home. What is he, what, what is he writing to Madison? What does he write about? He's writing about Lagrange's new book, yes. Mechanique Analytique. Right. Two years before his death, Jefferson, uh, Jefferson is reporting on the rivalry between the French and the English school of the, the analytic school in Cambridge versus the versus one day, one day in the future we'll so, have a president who will, yes. be, who will be reading mathematics. Hopefully, but interestingly enough, so the uh, Jefferson had a different idea, which was more, which was rooted more in sort of Cartesian, uh, Newtonian um, uh, uh, kind of uh, a, a later, which came later. This idea of numerical representation of things, in, like coordinate grid. So mm-hmm. kind of uh, right, and so yeah, and so in, so then uh, it looked like so. Well, I wish we had more time, but so I have to kind of right. accelerate a little bit just to finish this story. Um, you explain a, be- a very give, you paint a very vivid picture of that of that struggle, and it was interesting to me that the one who actually decided. Uh, on the side of Lanfant was was Washington himself, and one of the main uh, major sell not main we don't know <laughs> major selling points was there would be a big statue of George Washington. <laughs> we are now well, the the, the, the monument, monument, monument. Yeah, there was is supposed to be the equestrian the yeah, big statue. statue, and so you can imagine Washington going, you know, 
with Thomas Jefferson design, where are you going to put the statue? But here, it's <laughs> right in the middle. <laughs> yeah, that is that. Yeah, exactly. So Washington he broke the tie, the, and that's why we have Washington D.C. the way it is. The way the way it is. The way it is today. Yes. Yeah, I, I try to get. I, I mean, I, no, I, really I give Washington. Part. Yeah, that he was his, his patriotism and keeping the union together. It wasn't just vanity that that was there, but you know, who knows? And then you you actually go, there is a chapter where you actually discuss different cities and major sort of hubs in the world um, and the geometry of the design and how it sort of, what it tells us about the culture of the city or the country. So obviously now we are in San Francisco and <laughs> so the, I would say our geometry is non-Euclidean, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> which actually brings us to this point that uh, maybe it will be the last thing that we discuss before we take some questions. Uh, this point about uh, how this uh, this perfect order that you, we were, you were explaining to us, this sort of idea of modernity in the, uh, in the, in the era of modernity, this idea that you could somehow have this very rational, perfect worldview, right? And, and so politicians would use it for their own purposes. Artists would uh, have that as their vantage point. And scientists as well, who mm-hmm. this sort of idea of this perfectly attuned mechanical uh, universe in which nothing is left to uncertainty or chance. Mm-hmm. Right. How all of that came crashing down at the end of 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. And one of the first uh, sort of holes in this air, seemingly airtight uh, sort of uh, construct was the advent of non-Euclidean geometry. The idea that actually the world um, that Euclid described was the, not the only one, was not the only mathematical reality that you could have. The fifth postulate uh, uh, of Euclid, that two parallel lines right. don't intersect. Yeah. That's not, is, is an axiom, and it could be replaced by another one, right? So, and uh, you, you talk about this uh, towards the end of the book, and uh, uh, so I want to ask you, what's your, so how would you, What is which came first, the the geometry or the <laughs> or the civilization, yeah. <laughs> the transformation of geometry, or is both? How, I mean, there were, there how do you always, see that? Right, but the, the Euclidean is is the Euclidean view, which was very power, very powerful trend. But it was you know, and we, we talked about that. But it was never unchallenged. I mean, there are others, like for example, uh, the English. Who, you know, in England, they didn't like Louis the Fourteenth. They didn't like his pretension. They didn't like his absolutism, and they designed gardens that were designed to be the exact opposite of Versailles, which we know is English gardens, anti-geometric. Right. The world is not at all like what you're saying. So that was one kind of criticism. Anti-Euclidean, anti-Euclidean, right? Anti- yeah. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Non-Euclidean geometry is a geometry in which space is curved. So, for instance, hmm. uh, the, if you just take the surface of a sphere, uh, uh, you know, so the globe, that's an example of a non-Euclidean geometry where if you have a triangle formed by 
the you know two two meridians and the equator, then you see that each of the angles is ninety degrees. So the sum is yeah. not hundred and eighty, right. but it is uh, two hundred and seventy. Yeah. Right. So that's the that's a, a, a sign of something that is doesn't conform to to the Euclidean geometry. And uh, interestingly enough. Um, a few years later, or not so many years later, so this is end of 19th century, um, Janusz Boyai, the Russian uh, Nikolai Lobachevsky. Do you remember the Tom Lehrer song? Uh, Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky is his name, you know, plagiarized, no? Okay. <laughs> Google it. So, um, but at first it appeared as pure mathematical constructs until Einstein showed us in his work on general relativity that our universe, our four-dimensional space-time, is not flat. It's not like a Euclidean space. Yeah. It is curved. A ray of light pass, passing by a massive star is going to bend. Yeah. And, and people thought it was crazy until Arthur Eddington in 1919 set out on an expedition and verified right. it. Yeah, I think there is. No, I think there is a very big. I mean, I think there are other challenges to this Euclidean view. It was one among others, but nothing was as deeply disturbing to that view than the, than the non-Euclidean geometry. I mean, the whole point of the Euclidean order is that it's the one thing that we necessarily is absolutely always true and has to be exactly as it is. And suddenly you discover that no, there is a. You know, there is an infinite number of possible of possible geometries, and they're all true, and they're all true in their own terms in the Platonic world. And, and they're all interestingly enough, they yeah. also appear and then projected they also, onto they our also, world. Yeah, they also appear. Yeah, they also appear uh, appear in our world. And I think um, I, I think there is some nostalgia to the Euclidean view, but I think I think in a deep sense. Our own consciousness never recovered from that notion that there can actually be all those competing truths incompatible with each other and each true in their own time. And we kind of live in that kind of multicultural kind of world of all those different your truth, my truth, their truth, each one of us in our own, in our own bubble. There's yeah, the CNN truth and the Fox however, News truth. However, there is something about and, mathematical truth. So it's not totally arbitrary. It's, it's not nihilism. Not. It's not yeah. like... Postmodern, postmodern. Okay, you think that's your opinion? That's my opinion. It, this is what I think is a very important point to make. There is the subject called mathematics, in which that you have a plurality of theories, but that's because you replace one axiom by another. Mm-hmm. Right. And interestingly enough, in some contexts, so all of them are perfectly valid, mm-hmm. uh, math- uh, rigorous math- right. mathematical theories in which, which are rational. And, but they are in contradiction with each other simply because they are, have different foundations, mm-hmm. axioms. Interestingly enough, our expectation all along by mathematicians, scientists, and so on, and just our common sense was that our world is Euclidean because we imagine that this space is three-dimensional. We can have three coordinate axes, which are perfectly perpendicular to each other. And if we could imagine that it goes to, all the way to infinity, mm-hmm. they would just remain so. And that's just simply not the case. Because if it were the case, light would travel along straight lines, and it simply doesn't, you see. So now, I, it, and the interesting thing is it's almost like we tried this idea that, yes, this ideal of a perfect rational thing that somehow is dream. set in stone. It's a great dream. And it's yeah. a beautiful it's thing. So beautiful. you have 2,000 years of Western civilization. But it's also beautiful, I think, that we are now sort of at a different frontier. And uh, mm-hmm. I was, as I was preparing for this, I encountered this quote by D.H. Lawrence, 
it writes about Einstein knocking that external axis out of the universe. So he had this idea of the universe sort of rotating in a perfect fashion, like a perfectly attuned mechanism on this external axis. It's like knocking out that axis. The universe, it turns out, is not a spinning wheel. It is a cloud of bees flying and veering around. <laughs> so imagine, imagine, and the hills of San Francisco, you know? <laughs> so there's a perfect, if you want to find a counterpart in a, Urban design, you know, in the urban space, that's that's Lombard. Lombard for you, Lombard's you know. Area. So, <laughs> a cloud of bees or tourist cars veering no. around, and then the D.H. Lawrence writes, "Thank goodness for that, for we were getting drunk on the spinning wheel." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, when I look when I look at Washington D.C., which was designed but with uh, the last uh, remnant of the Euclidean, the what? The last remnant of the seemingly yeah. perfect Euclidean world. Perfect, perfect well, Euclidean. guess what? <laughs> well, well, you know what? Guess what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I still, you know, you know, you go to Versailles. Versailles is dead. I mean, Versailles is a museum. You can look at it and say that's what Louis the Fourteenth wanted there. But we go there as, you know, we go there as tourists. But Washington D.C. is alive, and the language what 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 Lin Fan did there. It's still powerful. It's still powerful. I mean, you go there. I mean, for me, I'm just speaking personally. You go there to the mall. You look up at the, you, know, you look at Capitol Hill. You look at the White House. You look at those grand geometrical, geometrical boulevards. And I, you know, and, and the message is still there. There is a deep order there. And I find it going there physically. So anyway. Well, I find it remarkably <laughs> reassuring, I have to say. I find it like right. you go there, actually, you read the news, you think, okay, everything's going to hell, right? But, but, yeah, but, uh, but, as but you actually Jefferson advises us not to do it, right? And to follow Euclid yeah. instead. You so. go there, and I think, I, I don't know, I find it, yes, there is something there that will last. Of the, of the lost, know? it's almost like there a is an order, paradise order lost. There. You know, so it's mind there. I was like, okay, so there's also this idea. Wow, well, it was good while it lasted, you know. But now we are, we have to also deal with uncertainty. We have to deal with uh, other things, the, the, the world being not uh, not a, a, a sturdy edifice, but a, um, a bunch of bees leering around, which is what scientists are actually pointing to, and not only through Einstein's relativity theory, but also quantum mechanics, where uh, there is uncertainty built in, and there is observer dependence and stuff like that. So yeah. uh, to me, it's very fascinating because to read your book for this reason, because being informed, you know, my work is connected to quantum physics and being informed by, by this truth that emerged from science, uh, which kind of, uh, uh, kind of destroyed this naive ideas of determinism, determinism, Cartesianism, and kind mm -hmm. of this idea that absolute certainty, they calculate everything because you know the laws of nature. No, you don't. And so, but also to see the evolution of, 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 of humanity, how we kind of try, we tried this project with this, its beauty, but also its terror, like we discussed, you know? And so it's fascinating to see that because it's almost like now we have a clean slate. You could say, okay, from today, from this point on, okay, it's, it's your world. What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? How are you going to design it? Are you going to design it like a Euclidean way or a Cartesian way, non-Euclidean way? It's yours. You know, it's your, the world's your oyster. What are you going to do? It's important to be informed of what has happened. How does it, how did it work? And I think your book, the beauty and, and, and the fascinating aspect of it is it, it teaches us very important lessons about, about how this played out, how these ideas, abstract ideas kind of being married with very human um, uh, endeavors, you know, very human relations, how that played out. 
so that we can maybe try to avoid some mistakes in the future, but also learn from something that was beautiful, that was uh, passionate, that you know, and stuff like that. So maybe one last thing I want to ask you is, before we uh, turn it over to questions, is you talk about inner space in the book uh, when you talk about art. Unfortunately, we didn't have much time to discuss. So I want to talk a little bit about the inner space of Amir Alexander. So, uh, so first of all, I read in, a, uh, in, a, in an interview that you gave that actually your, in, your interest in, in mathematics came in part because your father uh, was a scientist, was a mathematician, phys- physicist, in mm-hmm. fact, right? Yeah, theoretical physicist. Theoretical physicist. And so... I don't know if you want to say a couple of words about um, about this because you the sense I got is that you learn, you kind of you learn from your father to revere in some sense mathematics. It was almost a mystical subject. That's right. Yeah. In your home, right? Yeah, yeah. My father, yeah, my father was a uh, theoretical physicist. He was a mathematical prodigy in his youth, and then a and then a, a theoretical physis- physicist, and a very successful one. Um, and he was, a, he was just, he was a modest man. I mean, in all, all aspects of life except one. And that was when he talked about mathematics. And when he talked about mathematics, then he would get this little glint in his eye and he would say, uh, you know, yeah, I read, you know, he read like, uh, you know, Courant when he was, uh, uh, in, in high school and he said, I I read this and it opened my eyes and I could see things, you know, this kind of mystical, religious language. And he really wanted to share that with me. And so uh, I even felt a sort of a filial obligation, sort of. And also like, wow, there is something there that I want to, uh, you know, that I want to see and I want to share. So I did. And I, stu- I studied math, uh, but I always loved history. And it kind of became... My, my goal to show math is perhaps a mystical experience for what perhaps it opens my eyes, but also made by real people. It is made by people here, people with real lives, real interests, real concerns, real, real thoughts, it's lives. It's a human story. So Doing what? mathematics is a human story. It is a human story. Or applying story. mathematics and so on. Exactly. Yeah, humans make math and math makes people. And I always wanted to sort of connect that kind of, uh, uh, in one way, perhaps connect with my father. I don't know. But uh, connect with that kind of, uh, with that, that mathematics and show how it is actually, how it is in the world. And uh, my work is always about that. And you, but you actually, uh, you actually dedicate the book to the memory of your mother. To my mother, yes. And you, there is a little a paragraph at the end I read, you, you wrote a little bit about her. It's a fascinating story that she was a, a, a resistance fighter in Budapest during the war when she was 15 years old, right? 15 years old, yes. She was, uh, yeah, she was in Budapest. They were basically, uh, and she joined the, uh, she joined the resistance and she was uh, smuggling uh, like documents, like suitcases of forged documents all around the city, just doc- and uh, you know, given you drop it here, drop it there, and it was thought that Jewish girls had a better chance. They was given that job was given to girls because you couldn't prove that girls were Jewish as you could, uh, as you could for boys. So she had that job, and she was captured several times. Managed to escape the last time, she was captured. She was arrested. She was kept in the police headquarters where they took everybody every morning. They lined them across the river, the Danube, and shot everybody and shot everybody down. And that would have been the end. 
except for on that night, the, the night that she was being held, there was a bombing raid. The Americans were bombing Budapest. The Russians were bombing, were shelling the city. The Americans were bombing it. They bombed the building. The building collapsed. She managed to climb out of the rubble and hide along the river. And she just hid there all morning and heard the machine guns going all morning long. And that's, and that's a sound that remained in her ears and she transferred to us just hearing. And uh, that's how she survived. So, yeah, this, this book is dedicated to her. Well, it's a great tribute to both of your parents, I have to say. So <laughs> maybe, yeah, let's give well, thank a round of applause. Thank you so much. Yeah. That's how she survived and you arrived. That's right, yeah. So um, it's time for questions. Hi. This sort of connects to what you were just saying about the influence of your father on your writing. In your books, there's a lot of math influences history, but there's also history influences math. I sort of want to know what side you approach it from. Do you approach it from the math side? Do you approach it from the history side? Uh, I approach it. Uh, I approach it on on both sides. This story story here is uh, is more about uh, about how math. So in this particular book, it's more about how math shaped history in the sense that human beings, people in history, made use of math in very creative and very powerful ways. One of them was Louis the Fourteenth, but others others as well. Uh, but elsewhere, I also look at the other way around. For example, uh, uh, Edward mentioned uh, a book uh, called uh, Duel at Dawn, uh, where it's more about how the Romantic movement, which was uh, in, the early, in the early 19th century, had an enormous impact on the direction of the development of mathematics. And it was sort of a turning point in the, from, from math being part of the world and all about the world to the kind of modern math that we have in which math is a world unto itself. And the and romanticism and romantic figures like uh, uh, Galois and Abel and others in that particular generation had enormous impact on the direction that math took. So it can go both ways. Mm. So I have a question to, to throw in here. You're talking about Einstein and, and uh, this, this attitude towards uh, how it became non-Euclidean geometry. And I, I agree that it's that life is much more like this buzzing bees. But I find that this Eddington experiment isn't, isn't as convincing uh, as, as it has been to a lot of people because Einstein took the idea that space was absolute and threw that out, and he made the speed of light absolute in order to base his theory on that. But we know that light is bent uh, by water. We know that light is bent by other objects. And so it's interesting to me that conceptually you can think of the sun, which is spinning, and, and therefore, uh, not just its core, but, but in a large area around it, including us on the Earth, are spinning around it, and there's a, there's a certain amount of momentum that's going. So if, if a starlight from millions of miles would come away, and it would come close to the sun, it would be affected by all those pieces. I know that light's not supposed to be affected, but it is affected when it's not in a vacuum. So why wouldn't the momentum of all of those particles affect the light that comes by and bends it a little bit in this direction that the sun is moving anyway? And that it's not that the sun is bending the space. It means a choice. It's a conceptual choice between the two things to me. Well, you know, the, John Wheeler famously said, mass tells space how to curve. Yeah. Space tells mass how to move. So in a sense, it's a chicken and egg. But yeah. in the way we describe um, our physics today, mm-hmm. we start with space-time. And of course, the key point here also is that to this day, we have not been able to reconcile 
Einstein's theory of gravitation, which is what Einstein's general relativity theory is, with mm-hmm. quantum mechanics. So it, which means that at large energies and small distances, Einstein's relativity will have to be corrected in ways that we don't, scientists don't know today. Right. right? So, but if we look at large distances and uh, low energies, then the so-called classical physics still applies approximately with good precision. And uh, then the key starting point is what is your space-time? So space there is a Euclidean space-time, which is like mm. what you draw you know, on, a, on a blackboard. So the screen is Euclidean in the sense that you can have two, the coordinate cross, the two perpendicular lines, which don't bend, and so they kind of straight lines at, at 90 degrees, which give you a, 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 a coordinate system. And contrast that with a sphere, the surface of a sphere. So, and I'm not talking about the surface of the Earth being bent. I'm talking about our three-dimensional space in which we're sitting right now being bent. You cannot try to imagine three-dimensional space curving like this. So you would have to go with an analogy if it were two-dimensional. The bug, and we were a bug crawling on, a, on this floor. The bug would think this is Euclidean, and then there would be a very smart bug called Einstein <laughs> would come and say, no, it's not, it's more like a sphere, mm-hmm. which kind of makes sense. You know that far away. There are people actually who think that our Earth is flat even today. But, <laughs> but Einstein is not about two-dimensional surfaces, it's about the three-dimensional and actually four-dimensional space-time. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I think experiment is just one piece of the puzzle. There are many other mm-hmm. uh, ways in which one could verify that space-time is not flat. Mm-hmm. You see, now whether it's possible in a in a small on a small a small range in a small uh, neighborhood of a point, let's say, on a small scale, you could always identify a non-Euclidean space, like if you have a small piece of a sphere, you can, you can, we have maps, so you right. can identify a piece of a surface of the Earth with a flat. Uh, surface of the map, right? Yeah. But globally, you cannot do that. So mm-hmm. that's more or less. Yeah. So this is for Amir. Um, as a historian, and I guess a philosopher, historians are philosophers. Um, have you made peace with the fact that parallel parallel lines converge? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've made peace. Yes. <laughs> I've made peace with that possibility that they can, under certain certain circumstances, uh, uh, converge. Yeah, but I do have. Uh, I have to say, like 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 I said, I think there is um, there is some nostalgia. There is some there there is something very powerful about that idea that there is certain truths that are absolute and unchanging and eternal and uh, we can always rely on them uh, on them to be there they're not dependent because it just the world has to be like that not because we made some assumption but because it has to be like that and i think even if we we know that that's not not that exactly... idea is not challenged though i would like to say mm-hmm. it's not challenged it's our physical theories get updated our mathematical theories still don't get updated it's just that physicists have learned that it's another mathematical theory which is applicable to this universe but the eternal the the, the nature of mathematical concepts and ideas mm-hmm. as being time as for all we know being timeless and unchangeable that has not been challenged 
Right, right. There are, there are unchanging, but they're, but, okay. Well, let's put it, put it's it, just let's put it that way. They're much, much, but said, they're much, much, okay. But there are the kind, there are the kind of truth. They're not arbitrary. You're absolutely right. But they are, we can, but we have this freedom to choose our assumptions, right? Which, uh, which Euclid did not think you have this freedom. He think some things are, have to be like they are. Modern mathematics say, okay, if you choose your assumptions differently, you can, you know, you can develop things in different, in different directions, which is, it doesn't mean they're arbitrary, but it's a lot, a lot freer than this thing. Some things just are as they are. Um, but, uh, or at least are in, anyway. The time bomb was his fifth postulate, right? So he, he, people yes. might much assume that it was not independent, that it, it followed from other things which seemed self-evident. Mm -hmm. This was the only one which didn't seem self-evident. The irony mm -hmm. was that it wasn't self-evident. In fact, it was, uh, uh, how to say, a power play. You insert it by, by decree, by will. Uh -huh. Then you could insert a different axiom, which contradicts it, and guess which one, which which formal system, so to speak, which logical system, is more accurately describing the universe for what we know today. The other one, not this one, right? So, but the the the, the, the foundation of mathematical idea are still unchallenged. You mm -hmm. see what I mean? So it's kind of a, a, the best of all worlds in a sense, where there is a plurality, but it's a controlled plurality. Well, controlled plurality. <laughs> I agree. So, I agree. If, I, yes, if, if you I want to have control, up. if I could just follow up again. Uh -huh. So, and I I'm sort of taking this in a direction. I would think, and maybe you can confirm that as a historian. You are actually saying that our ability to tell a story, believe a story, and understand that the story may not be complete or absolute is still very powerful. I, I, would, I would agree, yeah. I, I would absolutely agree with that. It's very, yes. Are you an historian? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's absolutely right. That's a very put. good point, yes. Mm hmm Thank you. Um, okay, so my question is about like city geometry more broadly. Um, so I am also a, I was a history person in college, um, and but also have been very fascinated by the ways that cities are designed, and have often wondered about regional differences. So I grew up in the Midwest, where everything is very grid, right? It's very north south, east west, very grid, very different in D.C. or even Manhattan. And then when I moved to the West Coast, I was basically like, what, what the heck is this? I don't understand how any of this works. And I'm curious. I hadn't really thought about those two things together before. And I'm wondering if there's a more like in terms of more modern timelines, um, if, if you have any thoughts about why there are such regional differences in the way that cities are designed. And is that related to the history of how that happens and the, the move west? Yeah. Well, well, the short answer is that uh, Jefferson lost the battle for Washington, D.C., but he won the war for America. He won the war. He, that is why America is gridded. It's really thanks to Thomas Jefferson. Uh, that is why the cities are gridded. And that is why, you know, when you fly over the western two thirds of the United States, you look down, it looks like a like a checkerboard. Right. And that is all thanks to to Jefferson, who invented, who who decided to, who thought that the uh, 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 that the new continent of America should be uh, should should be gridded like a like a Cartesian grid. And the reason why he did that was because he viewed his ideal was that America fundamentally is a blank slate. 
unlike Europe that has all this history and has all those complicated traditions so on, America is purely an empty land and a blank slate. And if it's not an empty land, because it happens to be, have like a certain landscape, certain animals, certain people, then those people will just have to be ignored or give way. Then we'll make it, and we will simply make it into an abstract geometrical grid. Why an abstract geometrical grid, an empty space? Because that would make it the land of opportunity and the land of possibility. See, uh, L'Enfant wanted to establish the ideals of republicanism in a fixed, eternal Euclidean order. What Jefferson wanted was to create this empty space, an abstract, abstract Cartesian grid in the countryside, in the cities, where anything could be built, and you can create anything at all. And so fundamentally... Uh, 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 and the cities of the cities of the Midwest. He didn't make. He didn't like cities at all. Jefferson. Their cities are kind of like an afterthought. They just grew there according to the grid. Uh, but uh, uh, but yeah. But that is why. That is why following his his design and his ideas. That is why American, like the the uh, uh, both both the rural and urban America is formatted in that way. So formatted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Initial this discussion that you had it sort of attracted me very well. It's the reason, the issue of reason that the early mathematicians are brought in. Where this fuzzy set theory fits into this? Now, Sorry, the what? Fuzzy, fuzzy set theory. Set theory. Yeah, fuzzy, fuzzy. Fuzzy set. Fuzzy set. A fuzzy set theory. theory. For the what? Sorry? So there is a... Um, fuzzy. 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 Like, oh, uh, yeah, fuzzy. Actually, it's funny because uh, at fuzzy some point uh, during the presidential yeah. campaign, I think it was George W. Bush was calling Al Gore's plans as fuzzy math. And uh-huh. uh, little did he know, I think, at the time, that actually this was a subject of mathematics. <laughs> fuzzy, fuzzy logic, you know. And I actually was a brainchild of a colleague of mine, a former colleague of mine. I don't think he's around anymore. But I might be wrong, so <laughs> let me withhold judgment on this. Lofty Zadeh, uh, his name is, right? Is well, that what? Being uh, with UC Berkeley, the chairman of the electric engineering actually initiated. Yeah, well, it might send the wrong idea that we practice fuzzy math at Berkeley. <laughs> but fuzzy simply means that the statement, you can say, you, you design your logic in such a way that the state, you don't say that statement is, ne- is necessarily true or false, but it could be somewhere in, in between. Mm-hmm. It could be a number between zero and one, with zero being false and one being true, say. But it could be one half, you know. And it turns out that you can actually develop a theory. It was very popular in the 60s, I think. Actually, actually when, I, when I was a, study, a student in Moscow, one of my professors was a, a big proponent of this. And so that's how I learned about it. But this was like the 1980s, so I think it kind of fizzled a little bit after that. So I'm not sure that... It is so popular mm-hmm. these days. It's nice to know that fuzziness uh, from the 60s even entered the math. <laughs> from the 60s uh, yeah. in Berkeley, in Berkeley, <laughs> in Berkeley. <laughs> no less. Well, right. Euclid would not approve. Uh, he was not, gonna, he was we not have, about We have two quick questions, I think, yeah. and then we, we, we have only time for those. Hi. Sorry, I have not yet read your book, but I'm curious. Um, so I hear going on up here that there, that humans use math and humans discovered math, but not all humans have. I can attest to that because... 
Uh-huh. <laughs> My background is from a different realm of mathematics. It's linguistics. Okay. And um, I work with a community out in the rural Amazon. And in their language, it's called a Quito. And in their language, they don't have any numbers past four. They can't count past four. Anything else past four is like a lot of things. And, um, and so I'm just wondering, um, in your book or in your studies, Speaking of parallel worlds and parallel lines, have you followed, like, what happens with the humans who did discover and use math? Sorry, I got nervous. <laughs> versus uh-huh. those who um, who didn't discover and use math and what has been the outcome. And then secondly, to follow up with that, I'm just curious if you would know, either of you would know, of any organizations who would be interested in going out there and bringing math to the Amazon because our global world today has reached the village and they are now asking for math and they want to learn math because it, it's um, something that we in our Western society use. So those would be my two questions yeah. for you. Well, when you say rural Amazon, you don't mean Amazon center, fulfillment center in a rural no. area. You actually mean the, the jungle. Yeah. The river. Just to, yeah. just, just to be the Amazon itself. Because yes. maybe the other Amazon also needs uh, yeah. they use, yeah. uh, you count one, two, three, four, and then many, maybe. We don't know. Sometimes when I look at my orders, sometimes. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a fascinating question because different cultures did obviously, uh, you know, from starting with, uh, 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 with some people who do not have it has only very rudimentary math like you were describing. Uh, but there are also others in the ancient world. There were different mathematical traditions which were, were, were very, very different from each other. I mean, the Greeks, when I, when the Greeks that, uh, uh, that I was talking about, it's not that they had the only mathematical and the only sophisticated mathematical tradition in the ancient world. There was, uh, there was an Egyptian mathematical tradition, which was, uh, and there was a Babylonian mathematical tradition, which was all, which was very sophisticated astronomy, and they had, uh, early forms of algebra, which the Greeks did not, did not develop, uh, and there were ch- development in India, where, or the Indian sphere, where the, uh, where the, the concept of zero comes from, and there were Chinese yes. tradition. So there were all those different, tra- different traditions, uh, and each one of them is fascinated to see how that was integrated into their uh, uh, into their into their lives. What was unique about the Greeks is precisely that they associated they were the ones who associated mathematics with truth. Uh, it's one thing to say, okay, I can use mathematics to measure the rise of the Nile or the movement of the planets and, uh, or, tr- you know, transactions, uh, commercial transactions or whatever. It's another thing to say, no, I can, we can use mathematical reasoning will give us simply truth. Something that is absolutely, absolutely irrevocably, eternally true. And we can simply use our minds and our reason and this mathematical method to arrive at absolute truth. That was what was so unique about the, uh, about the Greek tradition. And the story, the story that I tell is really what came out of that, uh, out of that tradition and this associated of ma- association of mathematics with absolute truth. Which and uh, but it was by no means the only option or the only mathematical tradition, and others were in some ways as sophisticated uh, uh, as the Greek, but they didn't have that element. Um, and as for your second question, I don't know. <laughs> and, and then again, you know, and then again, the question: Should you do it? Maybe I don't know. 
Yeah. Just one word. One word I want to say from so, my part that I feel that at least my personal understanding of other traditions is incredibly limited. So I wouldn't even say that. I think we don't know uh, I, whether they had uh, other cultures. I mean, we are very. I feel that I am so embedded in the Western culture that yes, of course, I I have a chance to study what the Greeks did and so on. But I would withhold judgment on so much on others. And so, for instance. Uh, there are some indications that Mayan culture, for instance, Mayan civilization had very sophisticated mathematics, which was slightly, uh, somewhat different maybe. And a lot of it is in the oral tradition and it's not been written. So for us, Western, for me, West, I'm speaking for myself, since I'm not a historian, but for me, Western to go and say, oh, they didn't know this, I think that would be too presumptuous. So I actually don't, I think, I personally don't know. They were telling me that they want math. Yeah. They want because they would like to connect to our way, yeah. right? But yeah. they, it may they also be to, yeah. that a shaman in that village, you know, has a certain knowledge which you know would would surprise a, a Berkeley professor. So no I think it's possible. Right, but that's because we, it, it could be that we are used to a particular way of communicating those truths through language, through this axiomatic systems like Euclid and so on. But maybe they have a different way. It's possible, right? So then we should find out. And that's how we could do it, by going, to, traveling to those places. So, Amir, a quick question. How did the Euclidean urban designers reconcile their notion of perfection with the possibility for change, for growth? I mean, did Enfant think that there would be only 15 states, so there were 15 circles? Mm-hmm. Did he never believe there would be a 16th? Um, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> that had not occurred to me. The fact is, he designed the city. Lenfan designed a city that was enormous for his time. I mean, it was. It was. I mean, Philadelphia at the time had like thirty thousand residents. He designed a city that was clearly meant to house hundreds of thousands of people. So I think the idea that you need to expand it probably didn't occur to him or to his critics. That it was so far beyond anything that was required uh, uh, that was required at the time. But I think you're probably right if you look at the geometrical city like even uh, Washington, D.C. or, or, uh, or uh, New Delhi, which was also designed uh, for colonial reasons as a very rigid geometrical city originally. And then they expand. And uh, that and what what was the city as a whole becomes kind of this the sort of sort of the core among this huge kind of uh, 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 very very ragged and not necessarily geometrical order order at all. And you can you can wonder if uh, uh, you know if that that meaning is still preserved there. Um, core of ancient great Ro- question. Yeah, the core of ancient Rome had more order than the outskirts uh, with the eight hundred thousand other people too. I mean, it's just the way that the big cities were designed. Um, it's always some attempt to have order. It always is over, uh, overdone by history. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. That was just fantastic. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion. <laughs>